Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 108, and I'm watching Lost again, and it's just a little bit weird. We're going to talk about bad things that are happening to my van, and I'm not very happy about it. We're also going to talk about sizing your inverter for your van and what to expect, a tale from the road from Bora Bora, a product review of Apple AirTags, and a place to visit where birds will literally eat out of your hand. Hello everyone, welcome back. I am having an absolutely horrible time with my van, and I will tell you about that in a minute, but I have two announcements that I have to make first. Number one, there is a video game coming out tomorrow, January 20th, on Xbox Game Pass, and it is called Paparazzi. That's pup, as in a little dog, Arazzi, and it's a game where... Well, you run around and take pictures of dogs. You can dress dogs up, you can play with them on the playground, there's all kinds of fun things you can do in this game, and your job is to take pictures of them. It's a casual game, it's meant to be just fun and something creative to do, and you can share the pictures that you take. And the reason I'm telling you this, because you might be thinking, what does this have to do with van life? is that both of my kids were involved in making this game. Simon Wagg, whose name you hear every week because he does the music for the podcast, and his older brother Fisher Wagg both worked on this game. And in fact, Fisher has been working on it for years, and I believe his name is in the credits. So I have to give the game a plug. It's a lot of fun. It's very, very cute. And if you like dogs, you should absolutely check it out. It's going to be on Xbox Game Pass tomorrow, and it's also going to be on Steam, where you can buy it and play it on your PC. Very, very cute game. Also, this week, you get not one, but two podcast episodes, because I interviewed Phoebe Millward on her scheme for how to make money on the road. Making money on the road is not one of my strong suits. It's not something I'm really great at helping people out with. But Phoebe has some ideas that I think are very valuable, so I interviewed her, and we're going to run that on Saturday as a special bonus episode. And... I think you'll really enjoy Phoebe, and you'll learn a lot from what she has to say. Okay, let's get into it. If you happen to look at builttogo.com and looked at the photo for this episode, because in the show notes I put a photo every week, you will see a photo of my van, affectionately named M3, on the back of a tow truck being towed away. <sighs> it has not been a lot of fun with this van. Now, I had a perfectly reliable van that I sold in August, and boy, do I miss it now. <laughs> I hope the new owner is having lots of fun with it. Actually, I know she is, because now I have the worst possible van you can have. That's right, folks. I have the worst possible van you can have. Do I mean an ambulance? No. Do I mean a Mercedes Sprinter? No. I mean an unreliable van. My van is unreliable. And that is the worst thing. Here's how I got here. When I bought this van, I checked it out as much as I possibly could. The van was in Texas. It was an old ambulance. It's a Sprinter 144 2011. It had 125,000 miles on it, and it had excellent service records. Everything looked great. Now, I knew that it was an ambulance, and ambulances present certain problems, but also opportunities, and I was willing to face those. That isn't what I'm talking about here at all. Forget the ambulance part. All my problems are coming from the fact that the van is unreliable. 
Well, so why is it unreliable? Well, it's just luck of the draw, it seems. But that isn't entirely true. Most of the problems I'm having with this van are maintenance related. Now at 125,000 miles, any van is going to start needing extra stuff done to it. You're not going to change your alternator out every 20,000 miles unless something's really wrong, but at 125,000 miles, yeah, things like alternators, air conditioning compressors start to go. You're definitely going to want to look at replacing belts, batteries, all this kind of stuff that isn't a yearly replacement kind of a thing starts to need to be replaced. And well, what have I had to have replaced on my van since I got it in August? Well, I needed a new radiator. That was $3,000. That actually was not a maintenance item. That was the result of an accident the van had in 2014 that was repaired improperly. I knew about the accident. I figured seven years was long enough to prove that they had fixed it properly. I was wrong, and I paid the price for that. That's kind of one of those things that there's only so much you can do. Even a mechanic wouldn't have caught that it was installed incorrectly because it was hidden. Okay, I eat that. That's fine. Then I'm out in Colorado, and the van loses all power and goes into limp mode. I have a bad turbo hose. Well, that's a maintenance thing. Turbo hoses do go bad. After about 100,000 miles, they're suspect. In fact, this part goes bad so often that people on long treks and sprinters will often buy an extra to bring with them. Okay, that's fine. Easy to fix myself. It was a little bit hard to find the part, but I did. All good. Okay, no problem. Then I'm driving, and I smell this very strong smell of diesel fuel. That doesn't seem like a good thing, so I pull over, and there's diesel leaking all over the engine from the top of the engine. I look at it very quickly, figure out what's going on, and it turns out that in this van... The fuel filter has a water separator built into it, which isn't uncommon, and the clips that hold the water separator's wires on break often. And before I had gotten the van, someone had replaced the fuel filter, which is good, I'm glad they did that, but they had broken these clips off. And that means that sometimes this thing will just pop off and all the fuel that's supposed to be in the fuel filter will be gushing up into your engine. So I literally took a hammer and hammered that back into place and then it happened again on the highway and at that point I was like okay I can't live like this so I replaced the fuel filter again I don't know if it needed to be replaced or not it didn't matter I was going to dig around in there I'm going to replace the fuel filter and then I zip tied that thing down why didn't I just replace it because I can't find the part. This van, for some reason, doesn't have specific parts for the van, meaning that just because it's a 2011 Mercedes Sprinter with this engine, which is an OM642, you don't know what the parts are because they used different parts over time. I can't find the right part to replace this with. And even if I could, I'm not sure I could replace it because the wires disappear deep into the engine. And remember, I don't have a place to work on my van. I just have a condominium parking lot where I park it. Still, though, this is a maintenance item. This isn't that big of a deal. It's a common problem. I fixed it with zip ties. I mean, honestly, that's a fix. It's ugly, but it works. Winter starts rolling in, and the van gets harder and harder to start. And I look at the batteries, it has two batteries, one of them to start the engine and one of them for auxiliary things, and both the batteries are six years old. I'm like, okay, the batteries need to be replaced. So I go out, and it was hard finding the batteries. They're an unusual size, apparently, and I don't know why, but I did find the batteries. I spent $450 replacing both batteries 
so that they would be a matched pair, which was recommended to me, although I'm not sure it was a good recommendation. And I put them in. The van starts, but it takes a while to start, and then comes to life, and I'm like, finally, everything is fixed, my van is good to go. And I had that feeling for 10 seconds. And then the van started going... And I'm like, uh, uh, what's going on? And then the check engine light came on, and then the glow plug coil light came on. Diesel engines have this light that tells you that the glow plugs are warming up. You're supposed to turn the key, wait for this light to go off, and then start the engine. That's just a diesel thing. It's also the light that comes up when there's a problem. Okay. Well, I don't know what's going on. Now, the van had been sitting for about two weeks because I had COVID, and the battery was dead. <laughs> it was kind of an interesting way this happened. I had killed the battery trying to start it, and I figured I needed new batteries. And the day I was going to go get new batteries, I got COVID. So fast forward two weeks. I'm good enough. I can go out and get the batteries. I do. I replace them. And then, well, it seems to fix the problem. Ten seconds later, I realize it hasn't. But I'm able to drive it. Once I gave it some fuel and drove it around for a few miles, everything was fine. I went and got groceries. Van started right up, I drove it home, and everything was fine. I thought, excellent, this problem is solved. I parked the van in its normal spot, went inside, had my night, dude, whatever, blah, blah. Next morning I come out, it just goes <laughs> forever and ever and ever, and it won't start. I get all these codes about open circuit on the glow plugs, and I do all kinds of research as to what this could possibly be. And it's either the glow plug controller, which is a part that's known to fail. It's a little bit hard to find, but it's an easy fix. Or all six glow plugs have failed at the same time. <laughs> now, if you're not familiar with diesels, glow plugs are these, they, they're actually what they sound like. They're these metal rods that heat up to a thousand degrees and they heat up the cylinder so that when you turn the crank to start the engine, the cylinder's hot and then the gases in there can compress and ignite the fuel and get the engine to go. They're not like spark plugs on a gasoline engine. These things are just to start the engine when it's cold. And, well, if it's cold out and it's like 25 degrees Fahrenheit out, you need glow plugs to start the engine. And apparently, mine don't work. All six of them. Because you can actually start the engine with just one. It just takes a while. Or the glow plug controller is bad. Okay, so I order a new glow plug controller, figuring, well, that's an easy fix. We might as well start with that. I order it from Rock Auto, and I get next day shipping, and the next day comes, and it's not here. Okay, well, sometimes they ship late, and the next day is actually the next day. That's fine. The next day comes, it's not here. I go on FedEx and search, and oh, yeah, uh, it's been delayed. We're going to deliver it in four more days. Wonderful. So I'm so glad I paid for that expedited shipping. So the module comes, and it doesn't fit. It's not even close. Now I know they sent me the module for what is called a T1N Sprinter, the original Sprinters that came over to the U.S. They had five-cylinder engines. It is not the same part. It's not even close. So I'm annoyed. I go back on Rock Auto. They do have the correct part in their list, but it's completely out of stock. And I go to return it, and they say, well, it's not our fault. That's what the manufacturer said. I am not too happy with that response, and I have previously recommended Rock Auto in the past, and I believe that I'm going to stop unless they can fix this for me, because I did everything that I could on their site to get the right part, and I still got the wrong one, and I don't think that's my fault. Okay, so 
Here I am with the van in the parking lot. I can't get a replacement glow plug controller except from the dealer. I call them up and it's $300. I'm like, okay. But before I make the trek out there in my wife's car, because my van won't start, I decide to test the glow plug controller. So this glow plug controller isn't really that fancy. Power goes into it and then it sends power to the glow plugs. And it does it like on a schedule. It starts by sending full power, and then after 10 seconds, it lowers the power just to keep the thing warm, you know, that kind of a thing. It's not the fanciest thing in the world. I don't know why it's 300 bucks, but it's fairly easy to test. Basically, you just put a test light on it and turn the key, and if the test light lights up, it works. And so I did this, and my glow plug controller appears to work. And at this point, I'm so frustrated with the thing, and there's no way I can replace the glow plugs in my parking lot because <laughs> the first part about replacing the glow plugs is that you have to start the engine and let it run for half an hour, which is not something I have the ability to do. I decide it's time to have the dealer take a look at it. This is not something I want to do. So I call AAA and they come and take the van. I have not spoken well of AAA in the past because there are so many reports of them not picking up people's vans for whatever reason. I even talked with them for an hour and they said, well, we might pick it up, we might not. But they came and took my van with no problem at all. They were here in 10 minutes. They took it right to the dealer, no charge. Everything was fine. So, hey, if you're in Chicago and you have a van and you have RV coverage like I do, my experience is that they will take care of you. If you're in California, you might have a totally different experience. So this is Monday of this week. They take the van in. The dealer verifies that the van is there. Great. I had an appointment for Tuesday at 7.30 in the morning. They call me Tuesday at 6 o'clock at night and ask me if I've replaced the wiring harness because it looks too new. And I say, uh, no, and ask, what about the codes in the computer? And he says, oh, we didn't check the codes. Yeah. So now it's Wednesday as I'm recording this. Haven't heard from the dealer today. I have no idea what's going to happen, but I'm not at all happy about this situation. And imagine if I was on the road. I mean, if I were in rural Nevada when this happened, I would have had to have towed the van hundreds of miles even to get it to a dealer, and then I'd still be facing the same problem. So I'm telling you all this Mostly to get it off my chest because it's been so very frustrating, but also to give you a real-life example of what can happen with a van, even if you do your homework. Now, I did do one thing that I recommend everybody do. I had a buffer. I built a buffer so that if things went wrong, I could take care of it. If you buy a van with your last dollar and head out on the road, you are setting yourself up for big, big problems. Don't do that. At least have a credit card that's empty to get you out of trouble in emergencies. So at this point, I am vanless. I have no van. I have canceled trips that I was going to take. I'm very frustrated and I'm not having any fun. I'm sorry if that's coming through in the podcast, but it is a cautionary tale and I will update you next week if there's an update and there darn well better be. Tech Talk. Let's talk about inverters once again. I mean, there's only so many topics we can talk about on Tech Talk. In the Discord channel, someone pinged me and said, hey, I have a 2000 watt inverter and a 1500 watt coffee maker, happens to be a Keurig, not that that matters. And every time I try to run the coffee maker, the inverter beeps at me and says, oh, low voltage. 
what gives? I mean, after all, it's a 2,000 watt inverter, and it is a 1,500 watt Keurig. It should be plenty. Well, and it, it is. Now, the truth is that if you buy an inverter, you should buy a capacity that's 25% more than you think you're going to need, which is actually what this person did. 1,500 watts plus 25% is 2,000 watts. For some definitions of 25%, we don't need to get pedantic here. Anyway, it should work. I asked them about their battery, and it turns out that their battery is similar to mine in that it has only a 100 amp output capacity. Ah, this is the C rate, as they call this. This is very important, and it's something that's easily overlooked. When you buy a battery, a lithium battery, it will have an amperage rating on it that refers to how many amps it can put out at once. And that amperage rating for inexpensive Chinese batteries, like the one I have, is often 100 amps. Now do the math with me here. If this thing can put out 100 amps, even if it's getting 14 volts... 100 times 14 is 1,400. And how much is this thing drawing, this coffee maker? 1,500. That's right, folks. It's not enough. The inverter can handle it. The battery can't, even if it's brand new and fully charged. And that's the problem. That's why his coffee maker is upset. And it's the same reason that my IKEA microwave gets cranky with me. So what's the fix? Well, you can add another battery. You can replace the battery you have. Or there's actually a very easy fix, and this is what I do. If you have a battery that's of this capacity, you probably have, and I would argue you should have, a DC to DC charger, or, or at least a VSR, a voltage-sensitive relay. And then when you want to use these devices, you start the engine. <laughs> I mean, that's what I do. When I want to make popcorn in the microwave, I start the engine for five minutes. It pops the popcorn. I turn the engine off. It seems kind of janky, but it actually works. And most of the things I use the inverter for don't need that much power, so it's not an issue. Eventually, I will probably add another battery. But when I bought my battery, I was only thinking about amp hours and not the C rate. And I wish I had redone that. I got a good deal for a 200 amp hour lithium phosphate battery. But while I have 200 amp hours of capacity, it's only going to come out at the speed it wants to. And unfortunately, that's not enough to power my inverter when it's powering my microwave. So just something else to think about when you're making your electrical decisions. Make sure that the battery you buy can output as many amps as you need for whatever devices you're going to run. Tales from the road. I had the great fortune to take an amazing trip from Hawaii to Australia via Bora Bora, Tahiti, and New Zealand. It took 18 days. I was leading a group. It was amazing. I loved the experience. And when we got to Bora Bora, I took a tour. It was a, the cheap bus tour. I wasn't trying to spend a lot of money at the time. So I took the basic cheap bus tour excursion. Every port has these. And I wanted to see some of the local culture. I was very interested in learning about the people that lived on Bora Bora before Western contact. And we saw some interesting things, but it, it tended to be skewed towards after the Europeans came. We, we saw the famous little huts that stick out on stilts in the water that you can rent. We saw the famous waterfall urinal at Bloody Mary's. You can Google that if you want. That's a big attraction. And sorry, women, I don't know how it works for you. And we saw gun emplacements from World War II. Those were all fine and great 
But the one thing I really wanted to see were these stones that they had on the island that were sacred places. The tour guide on the bus lived on Bora Bora her whole life. She knew all the stuff. And every single time we came to one of those stones, she'd say, Okay, everyone, look away. Look away. We're not going to mess with the spirits. We're not going to mess with the spirits. And we never stopped at any of them and never saw them. (laughs) And uh, it, it was kind of funny. I mean, this is exactly what I wanted to see. But the person who was going to show them to us was so afraid of them and believed in them so much that she wouldn't show them to us. So the good news is that if I ever go back to Bora Bora... I can go visit these and I'll have something new to see. And I actually like doing that at places. I like to not see everything. I like to leave one thing off the list so that I have a reason to go back. And Bora Bora, you are certainly a hard place to get to, but you're still on my bucket list. Product review. I'm going to talk about Apple AirTags. These are these little disc things that you can put anywhere and your phone can track them. They're like little GPS transmitters, except that isn't at all how they work. Now, these devices only work for people who are in the iPhone world. And that's a shame, but it's kind of how it has to be because of how these things work. If you have a Samsung phone, they have a competing product. But other than that, the only thing that's even close to this are tile devices, and they're not as good. So why are the Apple AirTags the best little object locators on the market right now? No, this isn't sponsored. This is just my personal experience. Well, they've got a lot going for them. They're very small. They're sort of magnetic. I mean, they're not magnetic enough to just stick to the side of a car, but they're magnetic enough to hold them in place, say, in the back of a van. They have a button on them that you can press that will ping your phone So if you lose your phone, but you know where your AirTag is, it will find your phone. And because of the way they work, they have the largest network of all the different ones of these. Basically, anytime anybody goes near your AirTag with an iPhone with Bluetooth turned on, this thing will ping. And that is recorded on some big server somewhere, and you can follow it. And because there's so many iPhones out there, this is the biggest network and it's the most likely one to show where your AirTag is. Now, what do you want to use this thing for? Well, you can attach it to your keys and then if you lose your keys, well, it's easy to pick up your phone and go to Find My and there's your AirTag right there and it'll give you the address of where your keys are. And if you're within 30 feet of your keys, it will give you an arrow pointing to the keys and telling you how many feet away they are which is pretty darn good. If your keys fall in the couch cushions, this thing will find them. I really like that. Or you can do what I did, and I put one in my van. Now, right now, when I go to find my and find my tag that's in my van, well, it's sitting in the parking lot of the dealership, right where it should be. But hey, maybe they fixed my van, and these guys were fans of Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and they want to take my van out for a joyride and jump bridges and stuff, which at this point I would be okay with, because at least it would be running. Well, I would know it because I can track them on the AirTag. Or, heaven forbid, somebody carjacks me and steals my van, I can actually watch them drive away, call the cops, and say, yeah, they're at this corner, and yeah, it's an ambulance. I don't know what the heck they think they're doing. Anyway, if you buy four of these things, they're 25 bucks a piece, they're 29 bucks a piece if you only buy one. I'll have links in the show notes, but again, this is not a sponsored commentary I'm making here. I think these things are great. I think everybody should have at least one in your van, and... 
they're so small uh, that you should probably have like one in your van and an extra for things like you're going to fly and you're going to check your bags. You can put one in your luggage and see that your bag got on the plane. Or if you have that experience where you land and your bag isn't there and the airline says, well, we don't know where it is. You can say, well, I do. There it is, which is an experience I wish I could have had not too long ago. <laughs> it's been a rough time, folks. <laughs> anyway, I really love these things. And if you have an iPhone, I think it's strongly in your interest to check out AirTags. Get the four-pack for 100 bucks if you can. You will find uses for them. And the battery lasts at least a year. It's just a little button cell battery. It's not any rechargeable lithium or anything fancy. It's a battery you can get at CVS or Walgreens. No issues there. It's the Apple AirTag. I like it. A place to visit. A few years ago, I was up in Wisconsin, up in the peninsula. There, there's this little, like, thumb of Wisconsin that sticks up into Lake Superior, and it's kind of wild up there, and not too wild. It's villagey, though. I mean, it's, like, not really a big place, lots of naturey stuff. And we went up in the winter. <laughs> Honestly, what we did was we rented a log cabin to go play the Long Dark in in the winter. <laughs> if, if you're not familiar with The Long Dark, it's a survival game set in the winter of Canada. It's I've loved this game, but <laughs> enough about video games. There is this place we found up there. It's in Fish Creek, Wisconsin, and it's called the Peninsula Park White Cedar Forest State Natural Area. And it's a perfectly nice Wisconsin park. But other than being on the lake, nothing really stands out about it except for this one odd thing. Somebody, and I don't know who, has trained all the chickadees in the park to eat out of your hand. It's kind of amazing. If you go to the visitor center area and walk into the trees just a little bit, hold your hand out with some black oil sunflower seeds in it, within a minute you will have chickadees eating out of your hand. We saw dozens of people do this. It's apparently a thing up there. And the birds learn from each other as new generations come along, and they're accustomed to it now. Now, you might have issues with people messing with nature and all that, and I get that. But if having birds eat out of your hand in the wild is something you'd want to try, well, head up to this interesting part of the country anyway. It's, it's kind of nice up there. <laughs> this is also the place that has the crazy winter festival on the ice that is a whole lot of fun. But I'll have a link in the show notes. The place is called Peninsula Park White Cedar Forest State Natural Area, and it's in Fish Creek, Wisconsin. And now I want to go back because I want to go play with the chickadees. Resource recommendation. On a similar note, if a bird landed on my hand and I didn't know what it was, I would find out using the Merlin Bird ID app. I've been using this thing for years. And it is an app that takes you through descriptions to figure out which bird you have. It's really that easy. It asks you what's the size of the bird. Is it bigger than a crow? Is it bigger than a sparrow? What are its main colors? Well, it's black and white and it's a little bit of yellow. And where you are, it'll get that from your location. And what time of year it is, it'll get that from your phone. And then it brings up the best candidates for that bird. And for each one, you can read about the bird, its natural history, and what I like to do is it'll play sounds that the bird makes. A lot of times you can identify birds by the sounds rather than by seeing them, and this helps with that too. Of course, you have to see it to figure out which bird it is, but that's okay. And then after I figure out which bird it is, 
I play the sounds back to it. And I have had fascinating conversations with birds in the wild using this app. And no, I have no idea what I was saying. I hope it was something nice. At any rate, check out the Merlin Bird ID app. It's wonderful. If you love birds, you will love this app. But take note, the databases can be quite big. So make sure that you download the app where you have a good Wi-Fi signal and then get the packs for wherever you're traveling. Anywhere in the world, actually. Make sure you get download the right packs for the birds in that area. And they can be up to a gig in size. So you definitely want to do this when you have a good Wi-Fi signal. Thank you, folks, for listening to this rather whiny episode 108. I really do appreciate you guys listening and interacting on Discord and Facebook and even Instagram that I still struggle with. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And remember, we have another episode coming this week with Phoebe Millward, so check for that on Saturday. And until next time, remember the I hope true words of Sumner Redstone. Success is not built on success. It's built on failure. It's built on frustration. Sometimes it's built on catastrophe.